Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. We're in a hot spot. You know, I think the hot spot of the United States and maybe the world right now. I mean, we've had hundreds and hundreds of uh, students at Iowa State University test positive in the last two to three weeks. And to somehow think that is a situation we can con- control without drastic measures is very worrisome. COVID-19 in the United States has impacted our lives in ways that are beyond the personal experience of most people. Adults who witnessed the 1918 Spanish influenza have long since passed away. Even our societal memory of the COVID-19 epidemic in New York City last spring seems dimmed by a collective amnesia of how destructive the pathogen can be. But tracking, testing, and stopping viruses that would otherwise wreak havoc within a population is the everyday work for some plant pathologists. We have a lot of experience with testing for very, very large numbers of plants or seeds, for example. In this episode, we'll explore the parallels between suppression of virus epidemics in human versus plant populations, and how plant epidemiologists deal with many of the same issues as their colleagues in human medicine, such as the need to test millions of individuals and the accuracy and sensitivity of testing. That's today on Plantopia. Hi, my name is Ana Cristina Fujadorza. I'm the director of the Plant Diagnostic Clinic at Colorado State University. Uh, my name is uh, David Carlisle. I'm a family physician in Ames, Iowa with the McFarland Clinic. I also uh, am a uh, hospice professional. So, Anna Christina, you are uh, working in a diagnostic lab. I assume that a fair number of samples that come across your desk are actually viruses that attack plants. What does that look like? How do you know that a virus is involved? Well, the first thing that we do is we look at the symptoms that the plants are showing. Um, and virus symptoms are can be quite unique. Um, they form patterns either in shadings um, on the leaves or streaks, um, or there can be deformations or rings that we look for. That's the first thing that we um, assess in order to determine if a virus is involved in the disease. It sounds uh, a bit similar to the process we go through in uh, assessing the risk of someone contracting a, a virus disease like COVID-19, where the first, uh, the first tier of screening is really questions about, do you have a fever? They will take your temperature. They will ask you questions about where you've been and who you've been with. Uh, have you been in any situations that place you at risk? How does that compare to the diagnosis of virus diseases of plants? 
That is actually very similar to what we do. So, for example, if I get a sample that um, where somebody suspects a virus um, and I look at the sample and I think it's consistent with what we would expect viral symptoms to look like, then I'd give the client a call and I'd ask questions about what the spread of the virus has been in their environment. Um, if they see that all the plants are affected or if only some of them are affected. Um, if it's a greenhouse, for example, if the disease has occurred or if the symptomatic plants are closer to the edges or coming from one side um, or if they're spread out. Um, and we ask a lot of questions about other things that in the environment that could contribute to the disease, like are there any vectors? Um, often insects are vectors of viruses. And so we'll ask about that as well. So there are a lot of things that go, that are parallel um, to what is done for human uh, viral diagnostics. And then there is the, the second tier testing that is done which is much more of a definitive diagnostic test involving molecular methods. How does that work? So if I get a plant and I suspect a particular virus, what I'll do is I'll look for any tools that might be available, any test kits um, that might be available in order to detect the virus. And that involves um, detection of either the protein um, uh, associated with the virus or nucleic acid detection. Uh, similar to what we're hearing now with COVID-19 about either um, RNA testing or uh, antibody testing. The present emphasis in testing for the presence of COVID-19 is seems to be geared towards uh, very high volume tests with very high throughput with very fast results. Do we have anything like that uh, in detection of plant viruses that might inform the methodology used against COVID-19? We do. We have a lot of experience testing for viruses in plants. Um, there are viruses are one of the biggest concerns for trade so for, for movement of plants um which is something that i think uh, we can relate to now in the this time that we're living with covid19 um movement of people it needs to be restricted so with plants we try to limit how much virus is moved um, when we trade seeds or any plant material um, that we exchange for uh, growing plants in other regions. Um, to do this, we uh, have set up sampling and testing methods that are high throughput. And a lot of the time we're looking for something that is um, not just fast, but that's also reliable, that it's sensitive so that it can detect different levels of virus and that um, is not very expensive. So if I were to tell you that I had a population of around 330 million individuals uh, and I really wanted to know how many 
had and had not been exposed to the virus. Is this something that would just be too daunting for a plant pathologist? No, I don't think it's daunting for a plant pathologist unless it's something new. Um, we have a lot of experience with testing for very, very large numbers of plants or seeds, for example. So if you think about how much seed is tr traded in the world, it is way beyond 330 million. Um, however, we don't test every single seed. So we apply um, sampling methodologies. And sampling methodologies, it's not a simple task. Um, there's a lot of, you know, we need to understand the epidemiology of the virus, of the viral disease. We need to understand um, how it's spread and um, how easily it can be detected, how often it occurs um, within the population that we're looking at so that our sampling can be a representative of the whole population. Have you been in touch with your colleagues on the on the human side of uh, of virus diseases uh, to try to sort of compare notes and see where there might be some synergy between uh, the two sciences? I have personally not been in touch um, with them, but we use a lot of the literature um, that is the research that's developed by both sides to better understand the particular viruses that we're studying. Um, an example of this is the first virus that was ever studied was tobacco mosaic virus. And from there, um, uh, we learned a lot about just viruses in general, and it provided information um, and a base for the study of animal viruses. And so there are many parallels um, and how we go about developing um, diagnostic tools or understanding the biology of these pathogens um, is similar. Um, and it's important that we continue to share um, the knowledge of, uh, with each other so that we can make advance and make more progress. Hi, David. Hi, David. <laughs> we, we could just bat this back and forth all day long. Uh, so, um, John's mentioned a little bit about what this podcast is, is like, and I'm, I'm sure Mark has discussed it with you. Uh, but this, this particular episode we're working on has to do with some parallels between uh, the present uh coronavirus epidemic and epidemics of plant diseases. So I'm by training, I'm a plant epidemiologist and I'm struck by just watching the news and hearing my counterparts in, in human pathology talk of the, the many parallels between the two. Uh, their uh, discussions of social distancing seem to me very much like uh, multi-line cultivars, uh, a way of uh, distancing uh, susceptible hosts within a population. And uh, I'm just wondering what your perspective is. And having spent some time with Mark, uh, what parallels do you see between human pathology and plant pathology? 
you know, I, uh, you know, the uh, COVID experience since uh, early this year has really made us understand the seriousness of infectious disease. And you, know, you go through times and you realize that infectious disease has been really uh, done well with various parts to uh, help protect human beings and, and with a novel uh, virus like this. And, you know, growing up and living in Iowa, you hear about diseases that go through the plants and go through the trees and wipe out, you know, Dutch elm and, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I do think there is some... Uh, some sim similarities between a novel infection going through a population in plants as it is going through the human beings today. Are you familiar with the, um, some of the screening and testing services that are routinely used in plant pathology to, uh, to test for the presence of, of these viruses? You know, I, I've done a little bit of uh, preparation, and in, in, in my understanding is that you'll look for DNA se sequences that go along with the virus, or RNA sequences that go along with the virus, and you'll look at you know potential seeds, or you look at different parts of the plants. But I'd say it's all very rudimentary. What my knowledge is, yeah, I'm I'm by no means an expert in this field, but what I am struck by is the. Uh, the high throughput of some of the systems that are used for, in particular, in the nursery trade, where they are screening thousands, hundreds of thousands, even even millions of individuals over longer periods of time for the presence or absence of a, a particular virus. Uh, and I wonder what the potential is for uh, cross-fertilization of these technologies uh, between the need to test extremely large numbers of samples for the presence of a coronavirus in a human population and the routine screening that's done presently within plant populations for viruses uh, across a broad variety of virus families. You know, I think that, uh, you know, human uh, medicine may be able to take some, uh, some, uh, information and some processes from plant pathology because I, I would have to think that you're into pool testing and I'm very very interested in pool testing for uh, for coronavirus I'm, a, I'm also has a, a specialization in geriatrics and and work with certain nursing homes and and they talk about do pool testing where they would collect samples from like everybody who works at a nursing home like once a month or once a week and just do the pool test. And, and if it came back negative, you can say, okay, you know, the, the population of employees, you know, at this nursing home are fine. Whereas if it turns positive, then you could go back and individually test, you know, test each and every person who had submitted uh, to the pool test. So it, I don't know if that goes down the line of thought you're, you're, you're coming up with, but I, I'm very interested in that, that element. It, it does, because we would typically apply that when we expect the results to be negative. Uh, so it doesn't make sense to do individual tes testing in that situation because you're expecting to just collect a lot of zeros. You end up with really the same decision matrix if you test 100 individuals pooled and then uh, you're testing only one one hundredth the number of samples. If you get a, a positive somewhere in that group of 100, 
uh, then you retest the 100 individually. But it's a much more efficient process, let's say, when you expect the results to be one in a million uh, in a positive. And that's exactly what I'm very interested in for, I mean, congregate living ill for nursing homes and for prisons and for other places where you have uh, people who by necessity have to be close to each other, you know, and you want to do, and, and, and this is, you can be healthy all the way, you know, in a monastery and never go out. And yet the next day, if you're exposed to somebody, you can get coronavirus. So, you know, so I, I'm very interested in the pool element and, and maybe plant pathology can give us some some uh, ways to d- deal with this in a, in a logical fashion. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Conviron is the world leader in controlled environment systems for plant science research. Conviron's reach-in plant growth chambers, walk-in rooms, and Argus control systems provide precise, uniform, and repeatable control of temperature, light, humidity, CO2, and other environmental conditions. Applications include plant growth, entomology, tissue culture, germination, and other research where tight environmental controls are required. Learn more at conviron.com or contact us at info at conviron.com. Now, back to the show. What would be a reasonable number of tests to run if your resources were unlimited? (laughs) If your resources are unlimited, then you want to test as much as possible because it gives you a higher. Um, chance of determining if a virus is there. However, that um, sometimes gives you diminishing returns. So there's a point at which um, it's enough. And that will highly depend on the interactions of the virus and its host. So for all viruses, there isn't one single sampling methodology, but it's very specific to um, uh, the system in which we're sampling. Uh, For example, if we were um, testing tomato seeds, our sampling methods would be different than if we were testing tomato plants, even if it's for the same virus. So in the diversity of crop plants that are available, it almost seems like every virus where you have to develop a test is novel. So we have a lot of experience in developing tests to things we have never seen before. How long does it take you to develop a diagnostic test for a new virus? Um, I think that depends a lot on how much information we have. We need to know uh, how stable the component that we're detecting is. So, for example, if we're detecting the RNA of the virus, we want to be able to develop a test that will reliably detect that RNA um, with or without any mutations. 
if we have, if we're detecting a protein, we want to know that that protein or that particular site on the protein that we're detecting is not going to change so that the detection method um, doesn't work anymore. And so we have to test that a lot. We need to validate de these tests, which is as many with as many samples as we can. And with collecting um, samples from different areas, because that they tend to not be exactly the same. The viruses tend to not be exactly the same in different places um, or in different hosts. And so we, in order to develop a effective test, we need to make sure that we cover all our bases. And so the amount of time that you have available to develop and refine the test produce, produces a, a more durable test. Uh, would that be true? Yes, that is true. Um, if we are able to, so we, if to test more, we need more time. Um, and so if we are able to validate our test with more samples, then our test will be better. Um, however, when there's something new that we need to detect, we can develop rapid tests. Um, or I should say we can rapidly develop tests that um, we can use. But the reliability of these tests um, will not be able to be determined un until we use it on more samples. I think that's the other commonality we can say between the plants and humans regarding uh, viruses is testing is critical and uh, you uh, the availability of a test and Mark and I were talking about this the specificity and sensitivity of a test is is, is you want to be able to test but you want to be able to have a valid testing. And uh, I just was telling Mark about a patient of mine who tested positive. We sat her down and had her quarantined for two weeks. And I talked to her on the phone, home monitor. And, and now she goes in like uh, five, six weeks later to get to, to she's healthy now. And she's going to go in to do convalescent, you know, to have blood drawn for plasma so she can uh, let her plasma be used to help other people. And her antibodies test came back negative. And so, so, you know, the, you know, the question is, was that a false positive test in the first place? And she just did all this for not, or did she, you know, or did her antibodies not be produced or did her antibodies, you know, were produced and gone before she got tested, you know, at the, uh, the plasma center. So, I mean, testing, you know, and the validity of testing is absolutely critical. Don't you think, David? Certainly, and the tests that are employed uh, for most of the plant viruses that I'm aware of are highly selective and uh, very sensitive and, and quite accurate. How do you strike the balance uh, to come up with a test that provides an acceptable level of, uh, of precision and accuracy? but it is useful for long enough that it justifies the investment. Yeah, so there are more sophisticated ways of detecting viruses, and oftentimes we start with those uh, methods. They're too expensive to be used um, or too complex 
or they might take too long um, to be able to detect the virus to be used in a large sample um, uh, cases. But uh, they help us determine the status of that sample. So the first, the importance of that is that um, we have a database or we have a biological collection of samples that we know have the virus and others that we know don't have the virus. And so as we develop the tests, we can um, evaluate their effectiveness against that database and that collection. Um, and when we get to a point where we feel like um, the detection is good enough, effective enough, sensitive enough to be able to help us manage the problem, um, then we can decide that we can use that test. It's in plants that usually um, is partnered with an economic uh, component. So there's value to the crops. There's a certain amount of plants that you can lose. Um, in humans, that's different. But I mean, that, you know, that's where you know you 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 make smaller the world you're you're interested in investigating and uh, i go back to congregate living i mean you know you know uh, nursing homes and other places where people are necessity you know to me you know you know if you had that kind of testing you could do on some type of a you know rapid basis i have a nephew who works at university of iowa hospitals and uh, research and he gets tested every friday to know whether he can go to work on monday Mm-hmm. And at Cornell University, we are tested based upon our level of contact with uh, with students. We're tested uh, as often as twice a week. Really, uh, but it is uh, it's a it's a a pooled test, uh, and then retesting if it comes back with a positive. And, but I, don't you think that's a smart way to do it? I mean, too. I mean, if if, if you expect a negative. And so you can pull it, and then if you are surprised, then you can go back and do some retesting. I think it's smart, and I think it's uh, it's also necessary when you look at the consequences of of being wrong in uh, in not testing. Uh, we would essentially shut down. We've we've been through that. We closed. We've essentially shut down since uh, since last March, and we're only just reopening now. When you're dealing with you, know, you know, uh, the populations in, in lay the public, I think how we phrase things and how we frame it in our language is important. And and I I loved up something I heard on NPR within the last couple of weeks that we never should have used the word reopened when we were talking about dealing with the next phase of the virus. The virus is always going to be there and be contagious until we had a vaccine and, and adequate treatment. And we should have said, we're going to mitigate and we're going to deal with this pandemic until we have an ultimate solution. I think we made a huge mistake by putting in terms like reopened. I think that was t- totally wrong. Correct. It's just like, uh, we're going back to normal now. 
Exactly. <laughs> there is you no should, normal. <laughs> you should not. You should not have. I mean, because I think you created you know, an idea in the lay public, and you created a momentum. We got to push, push to get there. And you created people who say, "Well, we can go faster or slower." I don't think we ever could have. I think we should have never even said that. We should have just mm-hmm. been upfront and say, "This is a virus. It's going to be there. You know, humans are going to be subject to it until we have an ultimate solution." It sometimes occurs in plant virus diseases that initially the viruses are are quite virulent, but then become attenuated through time. Is that something that we could look forward to, perhaps, with the present coronavirus? Yeah, I think that there is a um, equation between contagiousness and virulence. And if a certain virus is so virulent that the 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 individual the uh, that receives the virus dies shortly and it cannot you know contract it can cannot give it to other individuals you know Ebola and you know the first apparently the first SARS came that was that route this one seems to have a, a virulence for some people but uh, for many people it's not as virulent and thus it's it's easy to, to have it and then contr- to give it to others you know and we see mutations uh, on a, a regular basis based in this, the, the scientific studies I've been reading that it, it is changing unbelievably so so I think you're going to see change and you're also going to see variations of both contagiousness and virulence. Is the trend expected to be uh, consistently downward or are there random fluctuations where we might even see outbreaks of a more virulent strain? I think that it will you know, the ones we care about that you know are going to be mass you know, uh, contagious, I think they will be downward some di- at some point. I mean, you know, what you have, obviously, the other confounding factor will be the vaccines. And as, as you know, the, the flu vaccine is, is dedicated against certain subspecies of, of the influenza virus. I think that's the way this COVID will be is down the road, we'll have a yearly COVID vaccine that will go against the most common, you know, subspecies at, at, at that time. And obviously there'll be potential for a very virulent, you know, uh, you know, uh, element of COVID that is, uh, that the vaccines do not take care of. So I think, you know, you got both, uh, both possibilities. Uh, but the more contagious, less virulent are the ones that probably will be more likely to spread across the world. And are we talking about something that's going to occur within a single, say, flu season or something that's going to occur over a period of years before it's really noticeable to, to us? I think that, um, you know, you know, I've been struck by the, the scientific reading I've been reading about how well this mutates, and, and and they say it mutates on a very, very, very rapid, regular basis. So I, I think we're going to see the effects of this, you know, very, very shortly. I think vaccines will come out, and they may be effective, you know, you know, for one year, but then there'll have to be a, a, a variation of that vaccine, you know. You know, year to year. So, 
I think it's going to be very similar to what we have for the influenza virus, based on my uh, understanding. So, I mean, getting back to what you asked me about the mutating to a less virulent form, I mean, do you see that for these kind of plants, viruses that you, you're discussing? I mean, is year five less virulent than year one? It can be. Uh, it's not a given. Uh, and there are many exceptions to that where viruses have remained uh, destructive, uh, perhaps because they are not necessarily lethal to the plant, so they may not be selected against, but they might affect that part of the yield in which we're particularly interested. So, of course, there's a, there's a pushback from an evolutionary standpoint in a virus that kills its plant, its host plant, before the plant can reproduce. Uh, but it may not do that. And yet it may be very destructive economically. So we have a, a yes, no, and everything in between. I mean, the other quick question is, is I mean, you know, influenza, we now have uh, Tamiflu and uh, treatments for antivirals. I, I mean, I just can't believe there's any availability of an antiviral agent to go against a plant virus, is there? It's rare. Uh, our response to most plant viruses is to breed resistant varieties if that is available to us or uh, to try to remove the virus uh, from a propagation system if a plant is seed grown uh, and it's a seed borne virus or from uh, a vegetative propagation system if the plant is re reproduced clonally. So that is where the testing comes in is when you're trying to clean up your, uh, your, your foundation material from which everything else is produced, then the testing becomes critical. And the testing is also critical at the end phase in planting to, to discover and monitor the introduction of certain viruses that may come into a population, spread quickly, and cause a great deal of economic damage. always interested in, 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 in how ideas transmit through different scientific communities. I mean, you know, we have this really disconnect sometimes nationally on things like mask and in, in how to deal with certain conditions. You know, when a virus occurs in a a plant that it's affecting great great havoc is there pretty much easy quick uniformity and consensus about what it is and how to deal with it or do you see an element of time when there's multiple theories and, and nobody can agree on it and, and people go down different paths there was a, a famous case of a plant disease in florida uh, citrus canker uh it was unfortunate, uh, but it, it's, a, it's an illustration of what happens when people lose confidence, unjustifiably perhaps, in the science. Uh, and this was a case where probably the top expert in USDA uh, was advising in a 
an eradication program for the disease as it was introduced. It was a bacterial disease. Uh, it spread rapidly and it mostly spread through backyard trees, through infected backyard trees into commercial citrus plantings. Uh, it required the eradication of uh, all infected, all trees within a certain distance of an infected tree, presumably because the disease was spreading uh, at an undetected level. The the amount of disinformation that came out about that eradication campaign, mostly from homeowners and from their legal counsel, uh, delayed the eradication program by several months, if not years, and allowed that disease to become established in uh, the southern United States and largely led to a dramatic decline in the Florida citrus industry. I said, that's a good model for what could happen with COVID-19, where the people who are most knowledgeable are speaking about the disease, and yet they're not being listened to because of just, um, I wouldn't call it fake news, but I would say misinformation or poor quality information. I think it's a very apt uh, analogy and a very worrisome analogy because, I mean, I did, you know, uh, certainly, you know, Iowa, you know, bringing back students, I mean, you know, you know we've had hundreds and hundreds of uh, students at Iowa State University test positive out of 30,000 in the last two to three weeks. And to somehow think you that is a situation we can con- control without drastic measures, you know, it, you know, is very worrisome. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at planttopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.